Hello, Sonoma. My name is Francisco. Welcome back. My guest today is Charlotte Hager. She's a bread baker, a bookmaker, a cook, and a violinist. And she happens to be the new executive director of the community center. I can't wait to get started. Hello, Sonoma, and welcome back. Hi, Charlotte. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me, Francisco. This is great. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited to talk with you. So you recently joined the community center, and I just want to ask you a Mm -hmm. philosophical big picture question. If you could build slash create the ideal community center, the community Mm -hmm. center of your dreams, what would you want it to look like? (laughs) Well, I guess that's what I'm trying to do. I... So I think a community center can be an incredibly powerful thing. You know, I feel like in most of our communities today, like it can be so hard to find a public gathering place where you don't have to buy anything. You don't have to look a certain way or do a certain thing. You can just come and connect with other people. We might have parks, but it could be hard to find those kinds of things. And that, I think, is what a community center can be. So what I mean, the community center of my dreams is just a a place where people from all different backgrounds, all kinds of identities come together and like they feel like they belong and they have opportunities to, to do something together, to like learn something interesting, develop a new skill, explore some kind of creative opportunity. And all of it feels just welcoming and inviting and everyone has that sense of access to enriching opportunities and wow i would love to make that happen here in sonoma well that's exciting as much as i as much as i would like for this to be a hello sonoma radio exclusive this isn't the first time that you shared something like that as a matter of fact you say that you're a passionate you're passionate about building communities where all people feel seen celebrated and included and one example of that is your self-expression camp which is in partnership with the Positive Images, which is a grassroots LGBTQIA plus advocacy organization based in Santa Rosa, working in the community center, uplifting diverse, thriving artists with indigenous poetry, printmaking, and sculpture. So I think that's fantastic, your consistency there. So can you tell us what drew you to the community center in the first place, and what do you think makes this building so unique? Mm-hmm. It was about exactly a year ago that I applied for this job. And, you know, it was in the midst of the pandemic. And I'd been living in Sonoma for about three years at that point, but I'd been working over in Napa County. And I was so actively involved in the COVID response in Napa County. I was part of the the coalition of organizations active in disaster. And specifically, my job was to recruit volunteers to help out with COVID response initiatives. And it felt so good to be able to be involved in that response and to be able to do something. But it was such a physical sense of disconnect because I I lived here and I was actually physically present here in Sonoma because I was working from home. But all of my work was focused over on Napa County. And I realized that I, I, I didn't want to have that sense of isolation or physical separation anymore. And I wanted to do that kind of community service, but I wanted to do it in the community where I live and like where my kids are growing up. And I started looking at, you know, I started looking for opportunities and I learned that the community center was hiring and I learned more about the organization. And the more I learned, the more perfect it 
seemed. It's just, it's an institution with such a history in Sonoma. I mean, the building itself is more than 100 years old. The community center as an organization is 70 years old this year. And it's played different roles over the years, but it's always at its core been this place that tried to bring people together and create opportunities for creativity in every sense of the word. And it just seems to me like, especially in a time like this, where, you know, there's so much healing to do and we're all so mm -hmm. aware of the issues that our community is facing with segregation and systemic inequality. It just seems like there is such a role for a place like the community center to play in helping to bring the community together and, and trying to forge some kind of path forward as a collective. And that possibility just was so incredibly exciting. And, you know, this idea, this initial idea I had of, I just want to get involved in this community. Mm -hmm. It just suddenly, like, the community center seemed like such an amazing opportunity to really get into the heart of this community. And that is what it feels like a little bit. So I'm I'm super grateful that it all worked out and, and just so excited about what we might be able to do. Well, so am I. And this isn't your first time delving into community issues, and I'm sure it won't be your last. You're a community builder at your heart. And one of your other Sonoma involvements is your board president of the Sonoma Valley Mothers Club, which aims to create an atmosphere of support, education, and socialization for mothers of school-aged children and their family. So in terms of different kinds of communities, what do you think is different about a community of mothers specifically? I don't know that there's anything that's different about a community of mothers. And I, I, I just think that mothers are a group that need community and that might have a harder time than a lot of people to in, in creating community because just speaking for myself, you know, between my full-time job and the two kids that I have at home, like my my energy and my time is spent. Mm -hmm. It can be so hard to find time to do anything outside of kids and work. And that gets so isolated. And when you have that responsibility for other little humans and, <laughs> and just the incredible... Yeah, just the responsibility of it can be so all-consuming and so so scary and daunting sometimes that you know, having a community of people who are in that same position and dealing with the same kinds of challenges can be so incredibly valuable. And at the same time, it's hard for mothers to to find those kinds of connections and to find the time to do that. So being able to create spaces where mothers can come together and just commiserate or share or, right. or just support one another with whatever it is that their kids are going through or that they're going through and and just being able to talk to someone who understands just what it means to be responsible for other little humans and manage other things in your life at the same time is just i've i found it incredibly valuable yeah that's so exciting you know when you think of the expression it takes a village and yeah. That comes from having mothers all around who could just commiserate yeah. and be in the town square. Yeah. So it's cool that you're part of building that again here in Sonoma. Yeah. And again, just that sense of in society these days, or Western society at least, we're all so isolated from one another. Like that village, that sense of village is kind of gone. And hmm. I guess both with the Mothers Club and the Community Center, you know, this opportunity to recreate that sense of village a little bit is, I feel like we all need that. Yeah, absolutely. More than ever, we need the connections in person, digital, however we can. And you've been doing that and focusing on family, too, even before when you were in Napa, 
where you were involved in Up Valley Family Centers. It did many things, some of which tax filing help, domestic violence counseling, senior-focused workshops, English as a Second Language, middle and high school membership. You were also involved on Girls on the Run, which I think is cool, with mothers and with girls. And uh, this specific organization is an after-school program designed to inspire girls of all abilities to recognize and embrace their inner... Now more than ever, says the website, girls need to be accepted, inspired, and motivated. What I thought was fascinating, too, is that this is connected to your earlier academia years, where you were a lecturer in a class called Childhood and Adolescence Across Cultures. So, with that in mind, what do you wish society knew about inspiring girls? Oh, I, that's a really good question. I think what I wish society knew is how, how artificial gender norms really are, Mm -hmm. but how huge of an impact they make on someone's sense of self and someone's sense of confidence. You know, all this research shows that girls' confidence begins to plummet during the last years of elementary school as they sort of become aware of their bodies as begin as they begin to grow up at this like pivotal time and it has everything to do with with gender norms and you know these cultural notions of what it means to be a girl and what it means to be a boy and what the respective roles of these you know two genders is in society and these constructs are just so incredibly artificial. They're not based on anything other than our cultural beliefs about what women are and what men are and, you know, this idea of a binary to begin with. But they make such a huge impact on our sense of self and our our sense of our expectations for ourselves. And whenever there's any kind of disconnect between who we feel we are inside versus what we think society wants us to be, that can lead to all kinds of conflict and that can just break down someone's confidence completely and the gender norms imposed on women and girls in particular well not in particular because those imposed on men can be toxic too but the norms imposed on girls have everything to they're they're just they're so contradictory right like you have to be soft but you have to be i remember recently graduating from college i still have consider myself recently graduated there's kind of expectations in a career focused way i mean this is different from gender but serious in that you have expectations to have a specific job and to keep that job and to just do well and just having that framework which is less less integral than your gender your identity but having that framework of like oh you need to have a job you need to get a job everyone around me was just stressed out so i'm sure that's different for a girl who's learning who she is yeah at every level Exactly. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that for girls, like so many of these gender norms impact are are physical. Mm -hmm. You know, your body is supposed to be healthy, but it's also supposed to be real thin. And you're supposed to be beautiful and attract attention, but you're also supposed to be quiet and accommodating. And there's a certain point at which like there's no way that you can ever perfectly conform to all of it. Right. And then let alone like anyone who doesn't conform at all to any of these bodily ideals is given the subtle message that they don't matter or or even worse. And that begins to happen with girls in like late elementary school age. And it follows them throughout the rest of their lives. And 
I think if if society was, was more aware of just that combination of these norms are not based in biology at all. Mm-hmm. We made them up, essentially. But the way that we believe in them has such a detrimental impact on not just girls' identity, really, but anyone's identity, and especially anyone who doesn't fit into the societal mold. So how do we inspire girls in modern society? Like, what are some things we can do? Well, I think some of the things that Girls on the Run does so well is, you know, celebrating everybody for who they are and sort of trying to directly dispel all of those stereotypes about what girls should be and what it means to be a girl and allowing girls to see that their bodies are strong and capable just as they are, you know, and they're Mm -hmm. not only worthwhile if they're beautiful or thin, but they're worthwhile because they help you do things and move through the world. And everybody is capable of running a 5K. And so everybody is perfect exactly as they are. So I think that's one thing, but I think ultimately what we have to get to, and then that's just going to be something that has to to happen over generations. It's a slow learning process. It's just kind of letting go of those gender norms to begin with and kind of allowing everyone to develop their identity in whatever way they wish, you know, moving away from this binary sense too and allowing people to express gender in in whatever way that, that feels meaningful to them. I remember seeing this video that was pretty impactful to me, which was show me, it was interviewing girls and boys at different ages uh, the kids of different ages. And when they were young, they said, you know, throw like a girl. They said, throw like a girl. And the, the little girls would throw this huge, like great, powerful, strong throw. And then when they were older, you know, 14 or 15, they said, throw like a girl. And they would, it was a, a total stereotype. It was like a complete shift. And it's all because of the way that we talk about and we think about and we express what you're supposed to be at any age of your life. So I think that's fat. It's a good one, isn't it? Yeah. So you moved to the United States at age 19. You spent some time in the United States before, but at age 19, you're from Holland originally. Um, You, as you've shared, you have a lot of different perspectives and international perspectives is is one of them. How have, how has your international background shaped the way you look at community assistance in the United States? Well, I mean, I guess what, what really shapes my view of that is just, you know, I, I grew up in a I don't know what you would call it, like a social democratic or democratic socialist kind of, which is to say like a, a democracy, a constitutional monarchy, I guess is technically what the Netherlands is, but a democratic system with a pretty broad social safety net. People know about Scandinavian countries and, and sort of the extent of government assistance there to all citizens. And the Netherlands had essentially that same kind of system. So you know, my parents growing up received money from the government for each of the three of us. Like they had three kids and so they received stipends from the government. School was free for all of us, even university tuition. I did one year of university in Amsterdam before we moved. Um, I think my tuition was a thousand euros for a full year. Um, wow. <laughs> and, you know, in the same, and, and I, I mean, I paid that, but then I received from the government a monthly stipend for being a student to, you know, offset living expenses and all of that. And so I grew up in an environment where no one had to be homeless and no one had to go hungry because 
everyone was able to get the help that they needed. And I mean, that's painting a super rosy picture. And, you know, there, sure. there are all kinds of issues with Dutch society as well, and definitely people who fall through the cracks. But that was sort of the baseline idea. And, you know, there was this basic sense that the government had a responsibility to take care of one another. And really, that was us taking care of one another because we paid into that system through our taxes. And I remember, like, I had, the, I have this distinct memory from the two years that I spent in the U.S. when I was in elementary school. I was seven when we came and nine when we left. And we didn't have a lot of money when we lived here. My dad was a research assistant. My mom didn't work. And so we were really like going, you know, student stipend to student stipend on a monthly basis. And uh, we were <laughs> having lunch or dinner at McDonald's one night and my mom's mm -hmm. purse got stolen. Wow. And it just, you know, she had it like hung over her chair and it, someone just took it and it was gone when we got up to leave. And my mom was so upset. And I remember just feeling so threatened, like I had just learned that there was no safety net in the U.S. And that if something like that happened, people could end up on the street. And so I was convinced that we were now going to be homeless. And like, I remember, you know, going home and like grabbing my piggy bank of nickels and dimes and like bringing it to my mom and hoping that that would help <laughs> us like not become homeless. Wow. And I had nightmares for weeks about ending up on the street because my mom's purse had been stolen and, you know, there was no safety net. And so I sort of, I come from that background and I believe in the value of paying into a government that can provide services. I mean, the idea of equal opportunity and people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps is a wonderful idea in an ideal world where there is equal opportunity and everyone has that same kind of chance to make something of themselves, but that's just not the world that we live in. And so we need some kind of system where we take care of one another and where the people who just don't have the same opportunity to, you know, be financially stable, are able to access support systems that can lift them out of poverty and and create that kind of equal footing where someone has an opportunity to, to you know, get an education that can lead to upward mobility. And so I'm, I'm a big proponent of that. And, and I, I don't always fully understand, you know, the, the American attitude of grumbling about paying taxes. You know, there's such a sense in this country that like your taxes are government money or, or it are is your money and the government takes it away from you. Whereas in Holland, the attitude is much more like that was never my money. That is my contribution to the whole. And that comes back to me in some way through these stipends for having children or these student loan payments or whatever form of assistance it might be it comes back to you at some point, if only in the form of, you know, never having to worry that you're one medical bill away from homelessness. It's a circle of life. Well, that's magical. Yeah. So we're going to have to take a quick break here, Charlotte, but we'll be on Hello Sonoma with Charlotte Hager. Hello. 
Hello, Sonoma. Welcome back. I'm here with my guest, Charlotte Hager. We were just talking about her international experience, but I want to talk about how she arrived in the United States at age 19. And she came directly to the halls of University of Chicago because your mother and father were invited to teach slash research there. You minored in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. And mm-hmm. a cool fact is that your father can read cuneiform, which is an ancient Babylonian script. That is so yes. cool. <laughs> in what other ways did having two academic parents impact your life? I mean, significantly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, growing up with two intellectual parents, you know, it it was never a question whether we would go to college and pursue a higher education. We also, so both of my parents are are linguists, essentially. So we had, you know, many dinner conversations about the origin of languages. And and we always have these running jokes about etymology and, you know, where words (laughs) come from. And, And the running joke is that my dad can derive anything back from latin (laughs) it's like Um, my big fat greek wedding (laughs) and which i mean is not untrue for most european languages you know and my parents definitely weren't like hugely demanding or strict in terms of academic achievement but there was definitely always that sense of expectation that we were going to work hard and we were going to get good grades and we were going to go and you know get a higher education and all of us did and them being in the field of humanities and linguistics i think I, I often felt a little bit like the odd one out because I was much more interested in in the social sciences and, and in in biology. I mean, I started off like my year of university in Holland was medical school. Um, I was just I was super passionate about just just that full like the human experience, really, mm-hmm. you know, what it means to be human in the world and what it means to inhabit a body and how we how we live our lives and and try to do all these amazing things with a really fallible body. And so, and that was really not their, their wheelhouse, but they were always super supportive. And then, well, as I sort of started moving away from medicine, which happened in, in Chicago, where I really kind of developed, discovered the social sciences, I never really thought about you know, a career in, in the applied social sciences, like my, my model in my head for a career, anything outside of medicine was going to be like a PhD in a university position somewhere, mm-hmm. because that's, that's what my parents did. Right. And that's all I really understood or knew. And so I think it's in large part because of that, that I ended up in a PhD program and going that route. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up because I find your PhD route fascinating. You got your PhD in cultural anthropology from the UC San Diego and the University of Muhammad in Morocco. Your interests included global mental health, globalization, modernity, gender, morality, subjectivity, and selfhood, super cool, among others. And you weren't just a run-of-the-mill PhD student, which I think... They exist. You won a George Haydu Essay Prize, which uh, is a prize for a student of any discipline who writes the best essay on the study of culture, experience, forms, and human values, which is exactly what you did in your dissertation, which was title, Hysteria on the Borderline, Psychiatry, Cultural Change, and Subjective Experience in Among Women in Morocco, where you spent 27 months doing semi-structured interviews, life history interviews, media analysis, and participant observations. observations. Classic anthropology. So cool. So this is an interview show. Hello, Sonoma is an interview show. Can you tell us about some of your interview experiences? Yeah, it was amazing. I I still miss it a lot. And it was also something, I mean, I, I think my, my very first sort of anthropological interviewing experience happened before I went to Morocco. It was after the, after... 
No, it was during college. I, I went back to Holland and I did a research project with some with some young adults of Moroccan origin, like second generation immigrants. So people who had been born in the Netherlands from parents who had immigrated from Morocco. And I talked to them about identity and, you know, how they sort of define themselves uh, with these dual influences that seem to clash sometimes, you know, Dutch culture versus their Moroccan parents' culture. And I just, I remember I was so terrified of, <laughs> I love this idea of going out to do interviews and field work and be like a real anthropologist. But then the actual reality of finding participants and asking them all of these questions and and just that that process, like I, I was a little bit terrified, but it all worked out and it was amazing. And then I went to Morocco and I set up the same system, but at the psychiatric hospital. And again, I just I remember being so terrified in the beginning and I became really preoccupied with the power dynamics of it. Like I was mm. coming in as this Western white anthropologist, all educated to ask questions of these people and sort of presume that they would give me their time and tell me all of their most intimate experiences. And I, it, it just, it froze me, like it paralyzed me a little bit and I became very passive and I remember telling myself like it's okay like participant observation that's sort of the core of what anthropology is all about like I can just sit here and observe for a while and like mm -hmm. you know allow them to learn to trust me but then I was talking to one of the psychiatric residents one day and he just sort of made the point like if you don't go out and ask them for their time and ask them for what you need you're never going to get it you just have to go and do it and I thought to myself, like, he's right. I, I just have to go and do it. And so I'd made myself do it. <laughs> and nice. it worked out. And I so I interviewed about 10 different women who were hospitalized at this place, in addition to a number of psychiatric residents. So those were young MDs in training to become psychiatrists at this hospital. And with the psychiatrists, I did these, like what you would call semi-structured interviews where I had a list of questions, but they were really, they were kind of a guideline and, you know, wherever the conversation went, like that was fine. And based on the way that they responded to my questions, I was able to like change my interview protocols and develop better questions for the next one. But then with the, the women, the patients that I interviewed, the sort of approach was so it was called person-centered interviewing, and it's this method in psychological anthropology where the intent really is to go really deep into someone's personal experience. And so the interviews are really unstructured. They're very long and intense. They're usually like 10 hours with the same person, which, I mean, is broken up wow. into different sessions. But the idea is that you go really in-depth into someone's psychological experience of life. And you don't focus it on particular topics because you're interested in seeing just what comes up, like what is important to that person. And so the general idea was to try to get a sense of just their lives and their experience and, and how all of that led into, you know, this episode of mental illness that had brought them to the hospital and how they were experiencing that and how it was impacting their sense of self and their relationships with their family and loved ones. And they were, these interviews were just 
And I mean, some of them were easier than others. Some were more talkative than others, but overall they were just, they were incredibly just amazing. And it just, it was such an incredible privilege to be able to be let into someone's experience in that way and get to tell that story. And, you know, I've, I've always been a writer and I think that's in part what drew me to anthropology was this possibility of just writing these amazing stories about people and just being able to explain the experience of someone who lives in a different part of the world in a way that really just reveals the common humanity that we all have, you know, in a way that just makes their story so recognizable, even if overtly, you know, you would, if you saw this right. person, you might think that they're so radically different than you are when really they're not. And just that opportunity is what drew me to anthropology and being able to do that in this dissertation was just, it was, it was amazing. I, I miss it. <laughs> I miss that part of the work every day. That's so exciting. Uh, well, for those of you who don't, who may not remember, anthropology is the study of human culture, and um, a lot of the methodology is to be immersed in a culture and to kind of really get to know people and to become a part of it. There's, uh, it used to be this idea that you would just kind of read books about places, but uh, more recently, I mean, in the last hundred years, <laughs> it's about actually going there, being there, and talking with people. And immersion though not explicitly used as a word, is an important part. Your research, for your research, you spent several years immersed in the Muslim world post 9-11, 2008 and uh, you were a reader at UCSD for a course called Global Islam, and you wrote an article called Being and Belonging Muslims in the United States Since 9-11. Can you tell us a little bit about what you learned about Islam and perspectives on Islam from your time in Morocco? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the bottom line is, you know, that there there are as many perspectives on Islam as there are about Christianity. Right. And I think, you know, for Muslim immigrants in the Western world, they, I mean, just like all immigrants everywhere, they're just trying to make a life and they're they're trying to find a balance between holding on to the culture that they came with and the culture that they know and that feels like home and efforts at integrating and connecting and becoming a part of the local culture here in the United States or in the Netherlands or wherever it might be. And I think the the sense of us versus them that many Americans feel towards Muslims or, or Arabs or the Middle East, however people want to define it, that feeling is also definitely felt by a lot of the Muslims that I talk to. But that feeling, like what, what becomes so clear is that just like gender norms, that's something that we've created, right? This sense of hostility grows out of all of these negative encounters between American forces and the American government and its intervention in the Middle East and mm -hmm. other parts of the Arab world. And I'm not saying this in the right way again. No, I, I know I know exactly what you're saying. You know, most people can agree that people are not their governments. Yeah, and what I'm trying to say, I guess, is that, you know, on, on their side of things, like on, on the side of Muslims, they're grappling with this relationship just as much as we are. And they grow up with stories about the atrocities committed by the American government on Palestine and in Afghanistan and they're trying to make sense of it too and trying to balance this understanding of 
humanity and the average American with what they're seeing the American government do. And I guess the point of that is just that that a little bit of mutual understanding and a little bit of mutual effort to communicate and try to get to the bottom of who people are and kind of look beyond the headscarf and the beard on the outside can lead to so much more understanding. And I'm not saying what I want to be saying. (laughs) Well, I asked you a tough question. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, I guess the point is just, I mean, the point to emphasize is just that the humanity of, of everyone, you know, in this immigrant experience, like, like it's the same everywhere. And someone trying to hold on to their home culture that can feel so threatening sometimes to, to the native born people. But really like if you put yourself in their shoes, wouldn't you do the same, right? Like you grew up in a place, it's all, you know, this is what you were raised with. These are the lessons that you believe in. Like, wouldn't you hold on to the same thing, especially if the world around you is so alien and different? I mean, I do that. You know, I, I've been here for 20 years at this point, but I, I hold on to my Dutch identity because it makes me feel grounded. It makes me feel like I know who I am. And like, in my mm-hmm. case, I get lucky because you can't tell on the outside and you can't even tell from the way I talk that I'm not a native born American, that I'm an immigrant. And so I get away with it a lot more because people don't find it threatening, but it's the exact same thing. And you just look beyond those outward manifestations of culture and just try to understand someone's humanity. And, you know, we all try to hold on to our own identities. Yeah, that's so powerful. And you're you're touching on something that I think is interesting. That's the second half of your academic research. That's another invisible part of the identity that you sometimes can't tell that lays beneath the surface, which is mental health. And now more than ever, mental health is coming to the forefront of popular culture in every media that that you see. You hosted a panel that I think is fascinating called Narratives of Recovery, Exploring Illness as a Means of Becoming. And I think that's a fascinating um, blend of identity and the mind and health and who you are. Can you tell us a little bit about how you view identity and illness since your studies? Yeah. Well, so I I can tell a little bit of a story from this research at the psychiatric hospital. And and this is really where that idea of illness and becoming came from is because really I saw illness and, and especially just the diagnosis and the validation of it serving a purpose for someone. Like it helped them resolve something, uh, some kind of internal conflict or interpersonal conflict even. Because especially with mental illness, you know, it, it's so often... It's so misunderstood, and it's so often kind of considered to be, you know, a personal problem that someone just has to get over, where someone is just, I mean, you know, take hysteria. Like, we talk about someone just being a little bit hysterical. You know, someone is just overly (laughs) dramatic or making Mm -hmm. too big of an issue, and they just need to lighten up or just need to calm down, when really what's going on with someone is, is an actual conflict inside their brain, in their body, in their experience of themselves in the world, and it's interfering with their ability to be in the world in a productive way and in a way that feels good to them. And so if you understand it that way, then the service that psychiatry can provide 
through a diagnosis and through medication is the fact that this internal conflict is labeled as real. And you're no longer just being overly dramatic or it's no longer just about lightening up. This is an actual medical issue that needs a doctor and deserves attention and deserves, you know, some, some dispensation or special treatment. And what I kept seeing at this hospital in Morocco is sort of that, that thing, like that's what happened with the diagnosis. And that's what these women gained from their hospitalization is it was finally some kind of message to their family saying, see, my, my issue is real. Like I deserve mm -hmm. some special treatment and attention. Like it, I wasn't just being hysterical. I'm actually right. sick and the families were receptive to this. And so it, it, this process of being diagnosed and receiving medication and bringing the families in to explain what the issue was and doing that kind of education around what it means to be mentally ill and what, what does depression refer to or what is bipolar disorder? Uh, what is hysteria? Because hysteria was uh, a frequent actual diagnosis at this hospital. It was a way to resolve these conflicts that emerged from someone feeling this internal conflict and that getting in the way of, of productive relationships and getting in the way of being understood by their loved ones and their community. It opened up channels for communication and understanding and allowed these women to kind of redefine their relationships on more of their own terms and get some, some concessions essentially from their families. And that just, that was so fascinating and interesting you know a lot of people assume that a, like a psychiatric diagnosis is is it's it's such a stigma but really it, it wasn't in this particular case and i think in the same way i i feel like there are stories like everywhere and and i think more and more as people become more open about the mental health challenges that they face i sort of see that same sense of empowerment coming from being able to label something and having it become something that is recognizable and something that someone can say, oh, I know what that is. I know someone else who has that, or I've experienced that too. Like this is real and right. you can name it, you can see it. And then it becomes, yeah, it's, it's validating. And I find that amazing because, you know, we talked earlier about the, the group, the motherhood group. And that's mm -hmm. an easily identifiable identity. Most yeah. people know when they're a mother, <laughs> but with yeah. mental health, it's tough for you to know. But once you know, then you can create a group and you can commiserate and be yeah. together and go through the struggles together. Yeah. And I think it's uh, what's really commendable about what you did is in, uh, you studied this in academia, you kind of grappled with it as a sense of identity. And then you were also involved in it at the Women's Community Clinic, which provides primary medical mm -hmm. care, sexual reproductive health care, and mental health services for women and people of all gender identities and sexual orientations in San Francisco. So that's really amazing. We're going to have to take yeah. another quick break, but we'll, we'll be right back with Charlotte Hager on Holosonoma. Sonoma. Welcome back. I'm Francisco, your host. My guest today is Charlotte Hager. We were just talking about mental health and identity and how knowing what something is, is a great way for you to figure out what's going on with yourself. So I'm going back a little bit 
further again in your history, Charlotte, which is mm -hmm. with an organization called The Long Now, which is I'm fascinated with. Mm -hmm. uh, you are the Outreach and Development Manager. And this organization is focused on creating a perspective, a uh, life and humanity perspective that's much longer than one generation. It's actually the perspective of 10,000 years. And you wrote an article for them, which I thought was fascinating, about Oxford's oak beams. It's kind of a legend, but uh, oh, I yes. want to share it. And essentially, at the University of Oxford, a grove of oaks had been planted to replace the beams in the dining hall when they became beetly, because oak beams always become beetly in the end. This plan had been passed down from one forester, a keeper of the forest, to the next for over 500 years, saying, you don't cut them oaks, them's for the college hall. Uh, in other words, when the college was built, they planted a grove of trees so that when the beams rotted, they would have trees big enough to replace them 500 years later. So long-term thinking, you say, can be difficult for us short-lived humans, but perhaps trees can help us make a leap beyond the horizon of our own lifespans. Like the 10,000-year clock, a project of the long now, trees, alive like us but for so much longer, can help us imagine a time scale and thus a world that exceeds our own. So after spending some time at the long now, not that long on the geological mm -hmm. scale, but yeah. how has long-term <laughs> thinking seeped into your life? It's, you know, it, it's so interesting. Like I... It's been so long since I've been involved with the Long Now Foundation, but it that perspective still comes back on an almost daily basis. And I mean, what you mentioned about trees, like that's one thing. I, I still, I look at every tree and I'm just amazed that just, just something as simple as just the thickness of the tree gives you an mm -hmm. indication of how old it is. And I, I am just mesmerized by huge trees. I love to go around, like walking around Sonoma and just looking at these ancient trees and thinking about the fact that these are hundreds of years old, you know, and imagining like how these were here when European settlers first arrived. And these trees were here throughout all of this like turbulent like encounters between native populations and European settlers. And they saw all of this history and everything that happened here in Sonoma. And now they're just, you know, sitting here like on the side of a street that wasn't here as recently as you know 50 years ago and so it just it, in little ways like that i just i just noticed this sort of longer term perspective seeping in here and there as a really fun kind of kind of mental check almost you know and i what i've always what really stuck with me the most is is the way that danny hillis who is one of the founders of the long now foundation how he would kind of explain the the idea behind the creation of this clock and and the foundation around it is you know this this sort of this weird tendency that a lot of us have to imagine ourselves at the end of history you know we we look back at the like millennia of civilizations that came before us but we don't really think in this we like we never see ourselves as being in the middle of this story we're always at the end of the story right and you know, sci-fi, of course, imagines these distant futures, but none of it feels that real. And, and very few of us are really planning for a future that extends beyond our own lifetimes. And that's really such a weird mode of existence. Like, why wouldn't we consider ourselves to be in the middle of the story? And what is it that we need to do in order to put ourselves back there so that we can start thinking about what life is going to look like a millennium from now in the same way that we think about what life looked like a millennium ago and how far we've come from then and so 
coming up with these little thought exercises that that try to put yourself back in in that middle position in the story can be so helpful. And then these fun little stories about how when this college in Oxford was built, they thought far enough ahead to plant trees so that they could replace beams 500 years in the future are just such a great reminder of the way that we can build that kind of long-term perspective into our lives. And as soon as we do, all of these big social and environmental problems that we face become so much more overseeable and even solvable because we don't just have to rely on our own lifetime, but we can sort of literally plant a seed that someone else will then take on after we're gone. And, you know, when we see ourselves as part of a much bigger, like, story into the future, we take so much of the pressure off ourselves and we can just be happy, like, taking one little step in the direction towards solving something and trust that future generations are going to take it over. And I just, I love that. I love that too. And I think oftentimes it's not until, well, I've heard I'm not a parent, but oftentimes when you become a parent is when yeah. that becomes, pardon the pun, apparent yeah. uh, that there yeah. is a future. So for yeah. your two kids, are there any, you know, metaphorical trees that you're planting now that you hope that they can harvest <laughs> later on in their lives? Um. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I think all parents love to joke about what their kids are going to be when they grow up. And, <laughs> and my husband will certainly do that. But I think what I try to focus on most is is just this. I want to try to instill a sense of wonder. We're not a religious family, but I, I try to I try to instill a sense of just curiosity and excitement about the world around them. And I try to tell these kinds of stories, you know, about the age of trees and, and just try to get them to use their imagination to think about the past and the future. And then, so a sense of wonder and then a sense of compassion and, you know, everything that we were talking about earlier, like creating a world where all identities can be celebrated and everyone is free to, to be whoever they want to be. I try to, I try to talk about that with my kids a lot and encourage them to be who they are and, you know, try to read books with them that, that highlight all kinds of different identities and kind of talk about why it's important to celebrate that and why why we are stronger when we embrace that kind of diversity so that's that's the main focus and you know i do like it's when i think about my kids that i get the most like depressed and sad about climate change but my husband always does this thing that that i love and that always makes me feel better is he just kind of just like mr rogers's mom used to tell him growing up to like look for the helpers mm -hmm. um in disaster scenarios to to feel a little bit better like my, my husband sort of does the same thing like rather than think about what kind of world we're leaving for our kids to think instead about like how our kids are going to grow up to be a part of the solution mm -hmm. and they're going to grow up to come up with all kinds of ideas to fix everything essentially uh which you know no pressure on them yeah but it does make me feel better because, again, like the idea then is that we don't have to fix it in our lifetime. Like this solution, this problem solving can be ongoing and we pass that attitude on to the next generation and sort of instill in them that same commitment to taking care of the world and finding, you know, solutions to climate change and and all of that. So that that's what I gives me that. hope. Well, I love that you've instilled a sense of wonder. I've recently redeveloped, rekindled my wonder of Sonoma itself because mm -hmm. I've passed, I've gone down Broadway thousands of times. And on the right-hand side, 
coming in towards the plaza at that 76 station, I think it is. No, it's not a seven, whatever, yeah, gas yeah. station there. The tree There's a plaques. tree. Yes, yes, with a plaque. This tree was planted in 18, I don't know, 90 something, yeah. or 1880 by I don't know who. And it's there. And I've, what a cool yeah. memory. Yeah. And, and uh, that was before Broadway was paved. That was before the yeah. plaza had any trees on it. That was barely after the Bear Flag Revolt. I mean, mm-hmm. a completely different society planted that tree and it's still yeah. there giving us shade as yeah. we cross the street <laughs> exactly. towards the post office and i yeah. think that's marvelous so you know every I time want... i walk past that tree with my kids we we live on broadway so we often walk by it on our way to the plaza my kids make me do the math about <laughs> how old the tree is i'm glad your kids are <laughs> keeping you on your toes yeah <laughs> so I want to end this interview with one question that I think is timely and important uh, about identity and about time, uh, which is at the beginning, I introduced you as a bread baker, a bookmaker, a cook, a violinist, and I'd like to add mother to the list. And I'm curious how uh, a pandemic shifted these roles in your life. You know, if you think of them as different kind of bubbles in your existence, I'm curious, did the pandemic change those things around at all? And if so, what kind of bubble to the surface? I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think for a lot of us, the the pandemic kind of forced all of the different bubbles together, right? Because so many of us had to like <laughs> yeah. start working from home, and and everything became kind of mixed together. And I, I certainly was like in the midst of Zoom calls while working on my sourdough bread <laughs> and all of that. But I think, I mean, to be honest, like when when you ask that question, what I think about is mostly the fact that in a lot of ways, like the mother bubble has pushed a lot of the other bubbles out for mm-hmm. a long time because of just the demands of a full-time job and being a mother. Like I, I don't touch my violin nearly as often as I would like to, but I'm just, as my kids are getting a little bit older and probably as the pandemic is receding a little bit, and we're not all home all the time anymore. Like I am starting to find a little bit of room to to allow those bubbles to get a little bit bigger again. So that's been really nice. Well, I'm excited to see uh, what you come up with and all your different creative pursuits. Charlotte, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for me. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Francisco. This was really, this was a pleasure. Thanks so much for tuning in. You've been listening to Hello Sonoma on KSVY 91.3 FM. My name's Francisco, and it's been a pleasure hosting you here. And though this may be the end of the episode, remember, it's not goodbye. It's Hello Sonoma.